Acts 26 and verse 1, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor of Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar.
Father, this is your word and we thank you for it. We thank you that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, that your word stands forever and that it will accomplish all that it is intended to accomplish. And so do that work now in our hearts. Cause it to penetrate deeply that we would know you and love you and trust you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we have seen this episode unfold, it's all connected. We've been moving from chapter to chapter. This, as you know, this defense or this speech that Paul's giving is folding out of this opportunity that he has to speak before King Agrippa and Festus. And as you know, the trial really, even though it's called a trial, has little legal value. The decision's already been made. Paul, as a Roman citizen, has already appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he will go. But Festus is in charge of writing some kind of legal piece of paper that needs to go with him, and it needs to sound good because he's the new governor and he needs to impress Nero, the emperor. And so he invites Agrippa to come and to listen to Paul and tell me what you think and what I should write. And Paul uses this opportunity because Agrippa, raised as a Jew, although more ethnically than religiously, knows about the promise that was made to the fathers and the prophets. And Paul zeroes in on this knowledge and makes a very direct appeal to Agrippa as we see this story unfold. He also argues that everything that he said, everything that he's done, And everything he's standing on now is what has been revealed through the fathers and the prophets. This phrase, fathers and prophets, is mentioned three times, and I want us to look at these three occurrences in the passage today. And this is, in a sense, uh, a cultural norm, but it's code word almost for the Scriptures. In other words, Paul's saying this has all been revealed in the Scriptures, that the Messiah would come, that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would rise again. It's all there, and I'm not preaching anything different I'm just simply showing you that Jesus is that Messiah. That's the message that he gives. And so the scene opens in verse 1, and King Agrippa tells Paul, uh, you have permission to speak. I remember when I was in the military, there was a certain decorum that was to be used when you were speaking to someone who was superior to you. You didn't speak with complete uh, sense of being relaxed. You showed respect. And if there was someone that was kind of higher up the food chain, you were supposed to show more decorum and more respect. And I remember on one occasion in our training, uh, I was an analyst, and so part of my job upon analyzing stuff was then to present it to people that were typically higher ranking. In our training, they brought in this um, salty, full-bird colonel marine. Uh, Looked like John Wayne. I mean... You know, he, he was a tough guy, and he was brought in to intimidate us. That was the purpose of it. And we had to stand, and we had to give our analysis. And, of course, it was his job to pick it apart and make us feel like we were big dummies. Well, if the superior office recognized that you were frustrated and that you were showing particular restraint, he or she might say to you, speak freely. And the meaning of that was, okay, I understand you're showing restraint and decorum, but tell me what you're really trying to get at. Say it like it is. And in a sense, this is what Agrippa is saying to Paul at this point. Because after all, this is not a trial, and there's no real legal outcome here. 
he says to Paul, speak freely. And so Paul stretches out his hand. This was not a dramatic effect. This was, a, again, a cultural norm for an orator to, to raise his hand as he began to explain. And he begins stating that he's glad that he's speaking before Agrippa. He sees this as a good opportunity. This isn't Paul's attempt to, to, uh, to, to kiss up to, to Agrippa. But rather, he's glad because he knows Agrippa understands the Jewish laws and customs. And that's what he says. You're familiar, verse 3, with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. In other words, he's thinking maybe Agrippa's going to get it. Maybe he's going to hear. Of course, Agrippa was familiar with Judaism way more than Felix or Festus. And you see, even as we've gone through Acts, that Festus is probably the least familiar, and he's the one who has to write this legal discourse that's to go with Paul to Rome. But Agrippa was more, again, a cultural Jew than he was a religious one. He was the last of the Herods. There was a, what they call the Herodian dynasty, seven King Herods, and he was the last one. And his father, King Agrippa I, you might remember him from Acts 12, when he became full of pride there in Caesarea and put on the robes and thought so much of himself, and God wiped him out. said he had worms and Worms ate him and he died. Some kind of disease took over his body. That was his dad. And Agrippa II was only 17 at the time, and the, near, uh, the uh, emperor decided that he was too young to take over his father's reign, and so he was given a much smaller area to rule. And over time, he proved his worth and his responsibilities grew. And in the course of this, he his responsibilities included Jerusalem, and he eventually was given the power to appoint the high priest of the Jews. And as you might imagine, that's a particularly influential role for such a ruler, such a king. And so he had that power. He understood how the Sanhedrin worked. He understood who the high priest was, what he could do. He understood Judaism more than most. Paul continues by explaining that from childhood he was raised in Jerusalem according to, he says, the strictest party of our religion, the party of the Pharisees. We know how well he was trained, who he studied under Gamaliel. Uh, He was not a renegade in the faith. That's what he's saying. These guys are accusing me of being someone who's standing against the law, and I'm telling you, I have been raised in it, taught in it, and I have only stood for the letter of the law. And then in verse 6, he says, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Here's that first use of that phrase that refers back to the promise that was made. It refers back to what was revealed in the Scriptures. But he's not referring simply to a doctrine, but particularly to the promise itself. And the word for promise here is singular. It's not saying I'm standing on the promises, although that would have been acceptable, but he's referring very specifically, singularly to a promise, that is, the promised Messiah, that God said he would send a Redeemer, and he has. And that Redeemer is Jesus. The prophecies of this promise are too many to list. Uh, We could do a whole sermon series on the prophecies of the Messiah and how they were fulfilled But let me just mention a few. The very first we see in Scripture is in Genesis 3, right after the fall. Adam and Eve sin, and God shows up, and he pronounces a curse on Adam and on Eve and on the serpent. 
And in the curse on the serpent, we see what we call the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. Because he says in that curse, the seed, singular, again, we see singular, the seed of the woman will crush your head or bruise your head, and you will crush his heel or bruise his heel. And the picture here, although certainly not known to Adam and Eve, and certainly not known to the fathers for some time, was an image of what would happen on the cross. That indeed, Satan would bruise the heel of the one who would come at the crucifixion, but it would not be mortal because he would rise again. But this one, the seed, would indeed crush the head of the serpent. His end was coming. And 1 John 3 explains the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There's the seed of the promise right there. Genesis 3, we see it from the very beginning. And it continues to unfold. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the world shall be blessed. He said, through Abraham all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Remember when he gave Abraham the promise, it was Abram, not Abraham, and he was old and he didn't have any kids. Really, Lord? All the nations of the world? Well, as we see, Jesus was born through, as a child of the people of Abraham. God's work of redemption was not going to be limited to the Jewish people. And this is fulfilled and recorded as we've already seen in Acts 3 in Peter's sermon where he explained this. He says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The promised one had come. It continues to unfold. Now we get to David. And to David is the promise of an, of an eternal kingdom. In 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled, God says to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for, up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. An everlasting kingdom? Really? Because everybody's seeming to die here. How do we get to this everlasting kingdom? But David has promised a physical descendant in his genealogy that would establish this eternal kingdom. And now the pieces of the puzzle come together more. And as the opening lines of Matthew's gospel account, Jesus is born in the line of David, a descendant of his. The prophecy of the virgin birth. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the pieces begin to come together. This supernatural work would result in a son whose name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And now we're beginning to see that God is not, he's not going to change his righteous requirement of the law, but he's actually going to himself meet that requirement so that he is both just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ. 
And we see in Luke 1, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And the picture comes together more. When we look back at the Passover in the Old Testament, Moses and the Israelites enslaved in Egypt 400 years wanting deliverance, and God comes and gives the Passover. Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. And we see this fulfilled. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Peter adds to this in 1 Peter 1, Knowing that you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And the picture becomes clearer. One more, the temple and its worship. Paul points this out actually in verse 7. He says, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. The priests of the temple worked night and day to carry out the sacrificial system. A sacrificial system that could not accomplish the remission of sins. Everything that was in the temple and in the worship of the temple pointed to and was a shadow of the sacrificial lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. And Hebrews 7 explains it. He has no need, he being Christ, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' death was final and complete. And again, we could go on and we could talk about the prophecies of where Jesus would be born. It was foretold that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would have to escape to Egypt. They would teach him parables that he would be pierced and broken for our sins, that he would rise again. The prophecies go on and on and on. And Paul is saying, I am standing on what has been told by the prophets and the fathers. I'm saying no more and no less. This is where I stand. Paul's argument is indeed coherent and logical, even though Festus gets pretty upset, calls him a madman. Paul's saying, no, I am speaking logically. If you would just look in the Scriptures... But what we have to understand as far as Festus is concerned and as far as many who we might know is that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Unless God opens the eyes of our heart, we can't see the power of the cross. So Paul goes on. He says, My hope is built on the promise made by God to our fathers, and for this hope I'm accused by Jews, O King. It's this ironic statement that really I'm standing on these promises and they're the ones accusing me. And then he adds this rhetorical question, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? It's ironic. The logical outworkings of all of these promises put together should have been the image of Christ and what he did, but they missed it. 
Jesus explained this before His ascension in Luke 24. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, Jesus referring to the Old Testament Scriptures here saying, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Those were the words of Jesus. This is what should have been done. Well, then we get to the second example. As Paul continues, he tells the story of the encounter and conversion on the road to Damascus, and we're not going to look at this closely because we've looked at it twice already. Paul continues to use this story. It's his testimony. We don't always tell our testimony once. We tell it multiple times. It's appropriate, and Paul is using his testimony again. And each version has some different nuance to it. And in this one, we see a phrase that has not been included in the other occurrences, that it's hard for you to kick against the goads. This was an agrarian reference to the stick that was used to move the cattle or the ox along. And this is what Jesus basically says to Paul is that, you know, it's hard to kick against the goad. You can't resist it. We call this irresistible grace. And irresistible grace doesn't mean that everything the Holy Spirit does can't be resisted. But it it means that everything God intends to do, nothing can stop him. That God indeed overcomes all resistance. And in salvation, for Him to overcome our resistance is all of grace. Because the Bible says that we were enemies with God, at enmity with Him, when He died for us and saved us. He can do whatever He wants. We've seen this again and again throughout Acts that God rules and reigns. He does all that is according to His will. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The psalmist says, God is sovereign. He carries out all that He plans. So this idea then is then important in what Paul is explaining in verse 22 when he defends his ministry by saying, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is saying, all that God has planned and revealed through the prophets, this and nothing more is where I stand, and this is why I've been accused and arrested. And then the third example. You know, it's interesting, Festus jumps in here. He seems agitated, clearly. He accuses Paul of being a madman. Um, and it's interesting where he points the, the madness to come from. He says his education has led him to madness. Um, and I'm reminded, I don't know if it was Chesterton or who, that talked about being educated into imbecility. Um, you know, we could talk about that. could happen in some cases. But Paul says, no, that's not what's happening. Again, he goes back to the promises that were made. But in, at this point in the conversation, he really kind of turns on Agrippa and really zeroes the focus on him. He says, I'm speaking true and irrational words. Agrippa knows these things, he turns and says to him. And he begins, the text says in verse 26, speaking boldly to him. He adds, these things have not been done in a corner. They haven't been done in secret. We're not some kind of secret cult that's hiding things. All of this has been done. It's all happened out in the open. And then he directs this question to Agrippa in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He puts it squarely on him. Well, as you can imagine, Agrippa is caught in a quandary because for him to acknowledge 
what Paul is saying is true, he would look weak because of all the opposition against Paul. And for him to deny what Paul is saying is true would in essence be denying what he as a Jew believes. And so he responds in this way, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's response reveals what his motivation was in his heart. And he says, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. In other words, that you would follow Christ except for this imprisonment that I'm experiencing, that you would indeed believe and trust him. So as we have seen throughout Acts, and as we're coming down to the close, now just two more chapters and we'll be done, we can see that God's word tells one story, and it's the story of redemption. It goes back all the way to the beginning in Genesis, where we see God create this beautiful, perfect world, and all that he created was good. And yet when sin entered the world and seemed to to bring all of it to a crashing halt, God gave the seed of the promise And he said, I will make everything right. And then that that promise began to unfold through Scripture so that with greater clarity we can see that he would indeed send one who would make everything right. And that Redeemer would come as a man born of a virgin and to suffer, to die, but then rise again from the dead. It's this one story that we see And if there's one thing to remain with us today is that the God who made these promises kept them. And the same God keeps his promises that he makes us today. This is in essence what Paul was saying before Agrippa and Festus. God keeps his promises. I am standing on the promises of God, the promises given to and through Israel, and yet it's the Jews who want to kill me. This is what's absurd in essence is what he's implying here. But he's not worried about his own innocence or his own life. We've already seen time and time again, Paul's willing to suffer and willing to die. In fact, Agrippa and Festus acknowledged at the end that he's done nothing deserving of death. But what he desires is the same concern for each one of us today, that we would be like him, that we would believe the promises and the promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah, that he has indeed come to suffer, to die, to rise again, to pay for our sins. So you who are not a Christian today, let me say to you, will you not recognize God's incredible love and grace in this? Will you not see this unfolding story that God, from the very beginning of the world, had you in mind when he said, I will crush, I will crush the head of the serpent. Satan's plans will not carry on. Not only is God's grace incredible in what He has done for you in Christ, but His grace is incredible that He has even allowed you to hear this message of the gospel. Today, that you sit here is a sign of His grace. Come to Him and believe. And for you who are Christians, will you not only believe that Jesus saved you from the wrath of God's judgment, But will you also believe that Jesus will continue to keep his promises, that his character doesn't change, that he's immutable, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he will keep his promises in your life, that he will complete the work that he began in you, that he will forgive you of your sins when you confess them and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Some of you are struggling with that, I imagine, to believe that God has indeed forgiven your sins in Christ and cleansed you from all unrighteousness. Will you believe that? 
Will you believe that He will give you wisdom if you ask of Him because He's promised to do so? Will you believe that He will provide for all of your needs according to His riches and glory because He's promised to do so? Will you believe that He goes before you and will be with you and will never leave you? Will you believe that He has set you free so that you can live free? Will you believe that He gives you peace? That He will make your path straight? You see, in Christ, we find the fulfillment of all of God's promises because He is the hope of the promise that Paul spoke of. Paul writes, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank You for the promises that You've made, but also that You keep Your promises. Lord, how good and comforting it is to know that You never change, that You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that You keep Your Word and that You will do what You said. And so we fall on Your mercy today, Lord, acknowledging that all we have is You and that we trust You. And I pray that if there is anyone who does not yet know You, Lord, draw them to Yourself and save them. And Lord, cause us to grow in our faith that as we go out of these doors today, that we would grow knowing You and trusting You and loving You more in order that we might be a light to the nations, that we might be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, use us to that end for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.